This episode of MBSing is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked me not to read an ad, so I'm just going to thank them for their constant friendship and support. Enjoy the show. I do my head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Hello, welcome to MBSing. I'm your host, Mary Beth Smith. My guest today is Shay DeGrandis, and she talks to me about her love of an interest in mortification. And this seemingly is less tangible than it becomes during the conversation. She's a co-producer for Chicago's Mortified and has been doing that for over a decade. And in that, she has helped people produce pieces about something that they produced when they were younger. And they look back on as an art piece or a journal entry or whatever the person chooses to bring to their show and present to an audience and have to be able to talk about the way that they look back on it now with distance. And Shay helps people do that. So she became very interested in that process and listening to what someone wanted to portray with their story. And then we kind of bring that full circle to something that Shay has become passionate about more recently, which is being a death doula and a funeral ceremony writer and coordinator. So she has taken a lot of those same challenges from helping people with a story at Mortified and taking them into helping people tell their stories at their mortification in death. It is a heavy conversation. I got pretty emotional at at least one point, maybe two, but I think that it's hard not to. She's really inspiring person and uh, has these really beautiful words of wisdom and gave some words and thoughts and feelings to things that I had never really known how to think about or talk about or uh, experience because I just don't have too many close experiences with death, thankfully. So uh, this gave me a lot of perspective and I hope that you all enjoy it as well. Obviously, if you would like to check out Mortified Chicago, you can see those live shows. I'll put some links to their notices about live shows and such like that in the notes for the podcast. But I will also point you to the Mortified podcast, which often includes stories from Mortified Chicago. I learned more about Mortified from Shay. So if you listen to her words on the subject and feel so inclined, I'll throw some links into the notes about those as well. If you'd like to see me in a live show coming up, the next three Wednesdays will be Ben Plays the Mayor at IO Chicago at 8.30 with past guests of the show Sarah Shockey and Ben Vigent. You can also come to Thursday nights at 9.30 at the Annoyance Theater for the Fishbowl. That is an improv show, whereas Ben Plays the Mayor is a written show. So if you want to see, like, a kind of absurdist play about the mayor of a town. You can come on a Wednesday night at IO Chicago at 8.30. If you want to see some good improv from a veteran team of players, all of whom have been past guests on this show, you can come to the Fishbowl on Thursday nights at 9.30 at the Annoyance Theater. If you like this show, you may also like another show in the Chicago Podcast Co-op, 
It's called Tight Pencils. It's hosted by my friend Kevin Budnick. He's a past guest of this show as well. And he talks to other uh, cartoonists and uh, comic artists about uh, their lives and their creative process. And so I think it goes hand in hand with this pretty nicely because Shay is an artist and does talk about the art process. So if that's something that you enjoy in this conversation, maybe check out Budnick's show as well. Your Stories is this Sunday night at 7.30 at the Beat Kitchen. You can check out this month's Horror Stories theme as it is October. You can also check that show out as a podcast. There's too many to get to, but I'm glad you got to this one. I'm not going to belabor it any longer. This is a really fantastic conversation, and I've been thinking about it a lot since it happened. So I hope you enjoy it as well. Oh, yeah. De grandis. De grandis. My, the, you always re- I always remember, well, I don't have to remember how to pronounce my own name because it's my name. Yeah. But my grandfather uh, went up to my gr- my grandmother, obviously, before they were that, and <laughs> at a dance, like a church dance, and uh-huh. said, asked her to dance. And she was like, who are you? And he's like, he's like, I'm Phil de grandis. It's the grandest name you'll ever know. <gasps> That's so good. And so she's like, fine, I'll take it. And that's, then they got married. I was gonna say that's a pretty that's a pretty like fun icebreaker too. I think it's probably the only joke he's ever told in his whole life. <laughs> Based on your <laughs> experience with him. Yeah. <laughs> As someone No, he's probably told more. I just don't remember them because I was little. Yeah, so, yeah. Sure. And like you know, his sense of humor was probably way different from a uh, girl child's. <laughs> yes, a girl child's <laughs> sense of humor. There was no belching. <laughs> He was a good Catholic. I mean, there's probably belching, but there is no belching jokes. Right. Yeah. You did it like, you yeah. know, suppressed everything. Like You suppressed Catholic everything. Should. Yes. You're like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. My dad actually belched at me once like that. He like said, Shay. And I turned around and looked at him and he was in the middle of a belch and he just went. Oh. And he like just blew you. beer oh. smell at me. He's like. Ugh. And I was like, no, oh. not okay. That's not, that's not cool. <laughs> that's not cool. Anyway, yeah. I've, uh, you ever heard of a hot cup of soup? <laughs> no, <laughs> but I think I'm about ready to. Yeah, it's like if, you know, you got a fart brewing in you, someone if you, they want a hot cup of soup and you just cup it and kind of throw it at them. Oh, does that actually work? Yeah, it does. And it's oh. fucking disgusting. Because I have had the experience now that we've said that and you've called it a cup of soup. <laughs> where like, I thought I had to fart and it turns out that that's not what's happening. And I just shit my pants and it comes out through my pants. Like just goes, keeps going. No. That's happened to me. I've ruined chairs that way. No. You're just like, oh, I have to fart. Oh my gosh, that's not, that's liquid. That's a different hot cup of soup. It is a different hot cup of soup, but. And luckily one you don't throw at people. Yeah, that would be, whoa, yeah, that would be like a hot douse of ass. I don't know, I don't think you could call it. I don't don't think it would keep being like the the charade of being fun yeah. at that point. Know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because like, oh, that stinks, but nothing physically is on no. me. No. But there's nothing you can't. No. You can't give throwing poop at someone a fun name. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure somebody's tried. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure as well. Yeah. It's funny because I was going to say uh, that 
you know, in a transition to what we would be talking about, but it really is like a pretty decent transition phase to say like, I'm going to talk to Shay DeGrandis today about mortification and (laughs) being mortified and all that. And it's like, you just told me a story about ruining cheers with liquid shits so it's all it's all rolling through it's rolling through it's rolling through (laughs) actually it's funny because we did a show we just mortified um just did a live show last weekend on saturday and um one of our performers did a movie he made a movie when he was in college like when he was really young his mom was very proud of him he would make these movies with their video camera and she's like you're making art and so she like encouraged him to make more movies sure and he showed them and they were all pretty bad but for some reason his mom really liked them but the one he made for college was called no wind below and it was about a young man who couldn't um what he would call toot oh through the whole movie he called it tooting cute couldn't toot through his his butt but through his nipples uh- <laughs> and he had to f- fart to through his nipples through the whole mo- and then it became like a PSA for a condition of <laughs> nipple someone- farting nipple farting <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm yeah. sure running a show like that makes you feel <laughs> nipple farting like yeah. everything that it helps you just feel like oh everyone is super weird and has mm-hmm. a- had terrible things either happen to them or that they did yes uh, yes. <laughs> yes what's the origin <laughs> of your interest in the process of being mortified or mortification <laughs> so and we can get well, I mean, farther I mean, down the line i mean mary beth i mean come on uh, we all have it like i yeah. mean that's the thing it's it's a really mortification on two ends like literally there's no person probably on this earth who's like lived through their life and not had something totally so embarrassing happen to them. Yeah. And also it's it's like that leveling it's a leveling field. <laughs> yeah. It's a we I like the idea of the leveling field. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, what color you are, you, you something has happened to you that is totally embarrassing. Yeah. That's you know, really particularly mm-hmm. when you're younger, you know, when you're going through all your firsts, right? Does in the so. show kind of focuses on things that have happened to people when they were younger that they yeah, did or so produced it's, it's, when they were it's, younger. It's, it's it's what they've written about, right? Or produced about something that happened to them. So oh. it's all so the mortification comes from not like this embarrassing thing happened to me, but rather I wrote this about my normal life. Cool, and I'm embarrassed about what I wrote. Gotcha. About just my normal life. Yes, of course. <laughs> I'm embarrassed yeah. now at my reaction to just normal everyday events. Right, sure. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. yeah, because I thought that it was profound to make a movie about nipple farts. Yeah. And that's pretty mortified. That's, I, when I made it, I wasn't necessarily mortified. I thought it was cool. Yeah. You know, it's... it's right, yeah. But now that I look back on it, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. And that's know? really interesting. And now I'm going to get up on stage and I'm going to show this thing I made in college that was horrible, embarrassing, <laughs> and my teacher told me I would never, ever get a job. <laughs> I'm gonna show it to like 200 strangers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Also, that's... my entire office because they showed up. <laughs> like, yeah. All my friends, my family, they're all here. Hi. This is pictures of me farting out my nipples. Yeah. I absolutely <laughs> told a story at um, a show called We Still Like You mm, recently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was gonna say that you're probably familiar with. Um, Isn't and- that? 
Who runs that? Um, I think they have a pretty big uh, yeah. production. Isn't cast. It Tyler? It's not. Yes, he has at some point. So Tyler Tyler's Snodgrass. been in. Tyler's been in Mortified. Cool, 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 yes. cool. So Tyler's definitely and Dan Sheehan. Yes, both been Mortified. Good. Both of those guys, <laughs> if not, are still producers. Have been in the past yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shannon Knoll asked me to do it, okay. so that was my connection to it. So that's why I was like, "Ooh, I think there's a bunch of people who produce mm-hmm. it." But one of the reasons I was like, yeah, I'll tell this story because there were like two people in the room that I had ever met before that day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, yeah, I'll tell. But of course, it's like a podcast and it's going to go out to like a much broader audience. Yeah. It's ever, all, everyone else is going to have the opportunity to listen to it. But something about just going in and being like, I don't know, he's faithful. Who cares? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, you know, all of our pieces get recorded here and then they go to the guys in LA and then they could get chosen cool. for the national podcast. Cool. Right? So we have the Mortified podcast, Chicago. which comes out every every week and chicago is just one of those one of the like 22 cities cool that we all send every city sends all of our material in and awesome then they had they go through all of it and like slowly produce a show out of it show out of, i had no idea that so it was like a conglomeration yeah of so all, all of the stuff that comes through on the podcast the mortified podcast is all from all of the, our cities all across the u.s you know we Very don't cool. usually obviously use the stuff from like whatever Sweden right or Guadalajara because we can't I mean we should have I mean it would be awesome if we had like the Spanish podcast of Mortified you know yeah but uh how did you get involved in that in the first place like I guess what's the origin of um Mortified in more ways than one as it exists in your life now right so I um went to grad school with um Annette Ferrara and she was asked they had they had chapters on the east coast and the west coast but they didn't have anything in the middle of the country and so somehow they got her name I don't even remember how it was like they called somebody in New York do you know anybody and they're like we know this girl Annette and so Annette then asked me she's like um you're funny Ah. pretty organized so um, to like co-producer, with co-producer. You. Cool. So she was the original like producer, producer, and then I eventually just I just kept doing it. She kind of bowed out for a little while and then came back as a co-producer. But I took over, I think like eight years ago. Man, yeah, I, eight years that's ago. wild. That yeah. So it's been, been eleven years long. here in Chicago. Wow. Yeah. And it's how often? Um, this year, because of some stuff that happened personally, we only are doing four shows. Cool. But usually we do like six shows. Man, I mean that's yeah. still so cool for that long. Yeah, and to put and all we've been all together, over the so. city. We our first shows were at Green Mill, so oh. we did like Green Mill, then Beat Kitchen, and Main Stage, Lincoln Hall, Shuba's, Promontory. That's so cool. And like that's like a who room. of like all of the cool venues yeah. in the city. <laughs> I think, yeah, we pretty much hit them. Like uh, Lincoln Hall is pretty much right now our go-to. Right, they're just so great to work with. They're amazing. Everybody there is just fantastic. And it's an awesome space. Like everybody from like the guys who book us to like every single like I feel like they're my family now because cool. we've been there for so long. Yeah, and I really like working with. That's them, so. awesome. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of storytelling shows in Chicago, and they're all great. I mean, I have been to a lot of them. I've been in a bunch of them, and they're really fantastic. And, you know, I've been on both sides of it, both producing and writing Mm -hmm. and performing. And 
the one different thing about Mortified is that because people are coming to us with material and oftentimes massive amounts of material, like right. these are my journals for the for 10 years. It's like, right. this is not a situation where I can be like, yeah, you can be in our show, show up on this day with a story. Gotcha. It doesn't work you that like way. You like help them produce pieces. We have to help them produce the piece. And it usually takes like a, m- a good month and a half wow. to like what within your diary, your journal, these songs, this book of poems you have, these these letters that you wrote to somebody, this thing that you did for your English class. You know, we have so these movies that you made. You get like 10, 10 12 minutes on stage. So you can't just send somebody up free form who's most people are just pe- they're people. Right. You know, they're not performers. They're not necessarily storytellers. They just we are all storytellers. That's the whole point. Right. Is that we all are. Right. Not necessarily professionally, but we are all storytellers. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, well, I'm not a writer. I'm not a performer. And I'm like, but you're a human. And that's why we have you here. <laughs> like, this is why you're doing this. And you are a writer because, look, you have 20 journals. Yeah. yeah. That's you what know? I'm thinking as you're unpacking this. It's like even if these people don't think consider themselves performers or writers or creatives or whatever, at some point they – I had to have been. <laughs> right, to be because in this that's position. why they've shown up here. Is right. Because even if your journal consists of small boxes in a calendar that you've written about that's the really crush funny. that you have every single day, that's still, that in and of itself is creative, you oh know? Oh my gosh. And people don't see themselves in that way. So yeah. then it's, it's a matter of unpacking that. Cool. And helping them form the piece so that there's also a story. It's like, well, what do you want the audience to know about you when you walk off the stage? Like, what do you want them to know about the arc of this story? Yeah, like, what have you taken away from What have you learned about yourself, you know, in the process? And sometimes, as the producer, and this has happened many times where, you know, you're you're going through it, and it's like you're helping them unpack things about themselves, which is really interesting, you know? And and a lot of times, I mean, obviously, it's not therapy. It's just sort of more this idea of, like, I'm a witness for you, and I ask lots and lots and lots and lots of questions, like, lots of questions. And they're just like, huh? And I'm like, well, well, did she know you were lying to her? And she's like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's part of something. the story. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, or like, what? Well, did he did he understand that this is what was going on? Or like, what did your mom think about that? Or did you ever give any specific indication to that crust? crush that you were into them <laughs> yeah <laughs> like whatever like, yeah like in the real world like in your obviously in your imagination you really did right but what is your imagination in your journal versus real life yeah so that's really cool but that's also i feel like all of that coincides farther down the line <laughs> and into the rest of the story in right. terms of like learning who people Bar. are and uh i'm totally with you in the sense that uh, storytelling has sprung up i think out of uh, as storytelling as a performance art you know and and shows and all of this i think just solidifies that we have to be paying attention to other people's experiences right because everyone has their thing to bring to the table no that's and the really interesting thing for one of the things that's come up in some of the other work that i'm doing is this idea of storytelling as a way of teaching as well like it used to be that storytelling was something that was done communally and it was a way to like share knowledge Mm -hmm. you know like you think about like morality tales or you know 
fables and stuff like that. And like he would tell children this these things. Sure. And it was a way to kind of express express ideas and, you know, how people can learn. Yeah. And we don't we don't necessarily do that in the same way. It's like not in sort of like a village community kind yeah. of like we don't all get together around the fire, you know, yeah. and tell those kinds of stories. And so this For is sure. I think this is this huge jump in the storytelling community is because there's a, such a primal desire to hear stories and to like learn about other people and to learn how to be in the world or not be in the world. Yeah. You know, because there's also that. It's like you also hear those stories, you're like, oh, I should never that's do that, that morality tale where my mom, you know, we're like, you know That's that really they're eventually going to get eaten by monsters or something because uh-huh. why would why would you act like that? That's you know? so or like funny. Whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah, like that's how to lose a job or get out of a relationship or whatever. Right. It is. It's yeah. like a, oh, that's how to, that's how you do that. Yeah. <laughs> you ask, you have to have the stories that teach people how to be and how not to be for sure. <laughs> and and to tell people like if you have been like this you're not alone but that doesn't necessarily make it okay (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) uh Uh, yeah man it's so interesting how all of it really does fold together it does kind of fold together trying to like feel out who a person is and like what they their story is going to be and things like that well interestingly you know i do it for other people Mm -hmm. right and now i'm having to do it for myself Right. I'm trying. I'm also in that like actually in that process of trying to figure out who I am and to slowly work that out and to suss that out and to like pull things and card stuff out and smooth it down and fluff it up and look underneath things (laughs) and like be like, oh, what's that flap? You know, Um, just about who I am Uh, as a person. And listen to something or experience something and go like, oh, shit, that makes me think about myself in a different way than I might have before, you Mm -hmm. know, gaining perspective from something else in a way that you may not be willing to if you're not also trying to kind of do soul searching on your own. Right, yeah. So where did that process start? So, yeah, so like about a year and a half ago, I lost, I lo- I'm not going to say I lost my my job because that would mean that I misplaced it and I can't <laughs> find it and it's somewhere that I can still locate it um, and it might and it might actually be there and want me to take it. To, but that's not what happened. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but it was a job I had for 20 years. So I had a very secure job for 20 years and you, when you, when you have a job like that for 20, you know, these guys think that this is your job and people are like, oh, this is your job. It's like when you have the same job for 20 years, you go nine to five every single day for that long, it kind of becomes your identity. It's like you're completely structured on somebody else's schedule. Sure. Like everything about my life was somebody else's schedule. Everything. Everything. Pretty much. Not everything, but you know, like my daily routine, everything, uh, who I thought I was, how I believed myself to be in the world was all structured on this community. Uh, What you wore, how you presented yourself. Yeah. uh, Which was not always great, but whatever. Like (laughs) might have eaten for lunch or whatever it was, like even all these little day to day things. Sure. When I got up in the morning, what I did, you know, whatever. Right. Um, And suddenly that was gone. Like, like literally was at work one day and then by three o'clock that afternoon was no longer, I, I literally never went back in that building again after 20 years. <laughs> like, so Man. your, your whole community it's is like a divorce. Out. 
It was, it's, it's sort of like a, well, yeah, because there's like all this like legal stuff and all these other things that happen and, um, and it was very backstabby the way it happened Mm. too. So it's like someone that I trusted and I worked with just spent a very long period of time, Like like throwing you under the bus, throwing me under the bus, like daily and me not knowing that that was what was happening (laughs) so you know it's like oh here let me buy you drinks for christmas oh here let's have lunch oh here here's a present for your daughter and meanwhile it's like like all this bad stuff is happening and i don't even realize it (sighs) until one day it's like bam everything changes um and you know that shifts everything in your life but also shifts suddenly like this understanding of what life is like I thought my whole life I was like you're supposed to have a secure job like you get you're like this is what your life should look like you go to school you have a secure job you get a husband you buy a house you have children you do this you buy a car you buy these clothes you blah 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 here's the list of how to look secure in American culture sure these, yeah. are, these are your checklists of how to look secure in American culture. Yeah, absolutely. And then one day you're like, am I allowed to say that? Yes. You can Fuck say that it. shit. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. one day you're like, oh, that's not what my life looks like at all. Yeah. Um, and so suddenly, well, the first thing was you get rid of the fiance and you're like, bye. And then some bad stuff happens and you're like, okay, that sucks. <laughs> and then your health kind of goes a little bit and then you lose your job and then you sell the house and then you put your dog down and then you're just like, I, what, Wait, what the what? hell just happened that was the, to my that life? That whole checklist. Yeah. <laughs> like everything that was on it and you get rid of literally like 75% of all of your possessions. You're just <sighs> like, I probably took like 20 or 30 loads between a consignment shop and a thrift store. Like, at least I got wow. rid of like almost all of my furniture. I got rid of stuff that I had been carrying with me my whole life. Like literally like when my grandparents died, I took half of their furniture because yeah. I was the one who ca- quote unquote cared. Mm. It's Man. like, it's you carry like dead people stuff I your whole life. I was literally just thinking about that yesterday. What like, were you thinking about? Uh, how, well, I, I am getting married soon and about yes, how. congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. It's okay uh, to feel that's all right. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not negating marriage. Sure. I just. I mean, <laughs> know that. Uh, if I could do it, I would. <laughs> <laughs> know that uh, so much of the process has made me so frustrated with. Uh, what the wedding industry is and like what we're taught to think that we are supposed to get out of this experience mm-hmm. and what we're supposed what we're taught to put into it and one of those things is like I don't want a wedding registry that's just like um, China or like <laughs> towels or whatever because yeah. I don't need that or ever really want to because I don't want to buy a house that right. puts that stuff in it I just want to live in apartments and be able to do mm-hmm. what I want. And <laughs> but the thing that came along with that was like, okay, then what happens like when the generations ahead of me start passing away and like all of that stuff has to be somewhere and it's like, well, I'm not going to fucking want it. It's I guess yeah. like it's, it's a, that that takes us to the next part. Yeah. of our story. Let's do it. To part 3 of our story. <laughs> Um, so uh, people's stuff. So when I, when I no longer had this job that I had for a really long time, um, 
a f- uh, many years ago, probably like, uh, what is it, 10 years ago, I um, was friends with someone who was, who was older man who was very ill, and I kind of was his caregiver for a few years, and he passed away. And I was the executor of his estate. I had to take care of the funeral and all of his paperwork and everything. Like, wow. just everything. You became, like, illegal. Like, I was basically, like, the daughter he didn't have. Like, wow. if you... But it it wasn't my obligation because I wasn't his daughter. Right. That's, right. Uh, I agreed to valid take... point. Yeah. I, I agreed to take it on. And I loved him. And I, I wanted to do this. And then there's this whole thing of, like, legacy. So... You know, the way that he wrote his will and took care of everything, like suddenly, like I had all of his stuff. So this is exactly what you're talking about. So I had all of his stuff. And part of it was, you know, he was a brilliant man and, and I archived all of his papers, what I could find of them. I like archived his photographs. I like archived all of this stuff and but I was just me and I was carrying it around. And what do I do with this? And you know, for eight, nine years, I had his furn- like part of his furniture in my house. Like I did get rid of a bunch of stuff and I gave stuff to his friends, but most of them just kind of like stopped talking to me. It was all very mm. weird. It's just sort of this like awkwardness. You they know, were whatever. like, oh, he's gone. We don't have to. Yeah, have we don't know. So, we, yeah, yeah, exactly. They like basically like I wrote them checks and I never heard from them again. Uh. They didn't even say like, thank you or not. Like they didn't even say, yeah, I got the check. They just cashed it and I didn't hear from them. <laughs> Man. <laughs> so death does I'm weird sure, things. I was going to say, I am sure you see some really interesting yeah. behaviors out of people. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all do. I mean, that's sure. what life does. So I had been doing that for a while. And um, so that was one part of it. And so when I went to get, and obviously I mentioned my grandparents stuff. So I, was, I had all their stuff. Right. It was like I had rebuilt my gran- my childhood home <laughs> in my own home. And when I lost my house, when I had, well, I didn't lose it, but when I decided to sell it, I was like, I was looking at all this furniture and I said, I wouldn't have chosen any of this shit. Yeah. And I'm looking yeah. around my house and I'm like, none of this is mine. Like mine. Like sure. this is not what I would have built my house to look like. Right. I've built my life around it and everyone thinks it looks really cool. But right. I did okay. And it kind of even <laughs> goes back to that thing of like the identity of you being this stuff that right. was like thrust upon you. Or like I just I agreed to take. Sure. Like I mean it wasn't just thrust upon me. Sure. Like I could say no. <laughs> no is a word. Right. That I don't use very often, or at least not often enough. Right. No, I relate to <laughs> yes, that hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, a, <laughs> just say no. Yeah. Like I don't want it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't. <laughs> I don't want it. Like I was never the person who's like, I'm never going to talk to you again because that's done. But right, um, right. No, I'll take all the furniture, and and fill a four bedroom house as a single woman with all this like crazy shit. So I got rid of it all. Do you think like that- I like literally like I was like, you know what? My grandparents are dead. I love them. I won't forget them just because I don't have those marble tables. Preach. Yeah. People don't exist through their stuff. They exist because you remember them. You know, if you forget your grandparents because you got rid of the marble tables, there's a whole other psychological Situation. issue like going on there that has that's something different. And you might want to have that looked at. So once you got fired from your job in the first place, do you think that is what forced you to think about all this stuff in a different way? Yeah. Is being in your house and being like, what the fuck Well, first of all, I mean, when you, you know, as, as you might know, just even having an apartment in Chicago, you could become a house poor really quickly. 
And if you have a full-time job and you have a house, then you can kind of afford your mortgage, maybe. Right. But then if you don't have a full-time job, you can not, not afford, afford your mortgage pretty immediately. Really, really pretty immediately. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> what is house poor? Oh, okay. Oh okay, yeah, got house it. poor. Got it. Got That's it. That's what house poor means. Got house it. poor means like I put all of my money into living here, which means I'm not actually living. Like I'm not living. I have a shelter that's way too big and obnoxious. And, yeah. yeah. You my, know, I think when I bought it, I was like, this is the perfect house. And it had certain certain things I liked about it. And I was like, I was like, field of dreams. Like, <laughs> field of dreams. If I build it, they will come. Like, if I have this amazing house, then I will also get the amazing husband. Because look at this. Who wouldn't want to live in this with me? Well, I'll tell you right now, guys are like... What can I provide you? You already have a four-bedroom house. I'm going to go check out the girl who's in an apartment because I can give her something. Man. <laughs> I can't give you anything. That is fascinating. They're like... Because I'm sure it's... You already have what you so need. So true, yeah. yeah. What am I going to give you? I can't give you anything. Just, yeah. You, you can take care of yourself. You can be alone, and it's okay. Oh and so then I'm, I'm almost 45 and alone. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, whatever. No one there who feels like they have to be forced into providing things for you. <laughs> yeah, nobody has to provide anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's certain things I need: affection, sure. of course, love, support, support, companionship. Companionship. There's a plethora of reasons. Yeah. To Sex. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Hello. Oh, yes. Hello. Yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I mean I can take care of that by myself certainly just like That's everything what I was else is like and my yeah. old house had a really great shower. <laughs> I think the thing I miss most about my old house is the shower head. Sadly enough, I miss my shower hey, head. You know what? I think that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I know. It's like well, when you're like, "Well, this is a really great house, but I'm alone." That's Look at that shower head. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, I talked to a woman about like interior design recently, and she uh, self-admittedly was like, I'm not an interior designer. It's just like I like walking into places and like looking at people's shit and trying to like figure out what their deal is. And she said the main thing that she – I was like, what would you do if you had like unlimited – resources like what does your place look like and I, and she was like oh i have a pinterest that is just all showers her like the thing that she like <laughs> wants is mm -hmm. the shower oh, she's yeah. like very chill with everything else in the her rest house. of the house like literally the thing that sold me on this house is i went from an apartment in pilsen mm. where the shower was so small that when i shaved my legs i'd have to like push out the shower curtain bend no. over shave push out the shower curtain no. and the back would hit my butt would hit the back shower. No. So I go to this house and there's like a walk-in rain shower. Fuck. It's like a walk-in rain shower with like, and and the, the shower head comes off and you can do whatever you want with it. And it has a little seed in there and everything. And I'm like, I, this is, Oh, this is. I want this shower. I like didn't care about the rest of the house. I bought the house for that shower. I believe that. Yeah. I absolutely believe that. I cried that. when I had to leave the shower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then like, you know. Now I don't have a shower. It's the one thing I don't have. Yeah. I live in a van. I don't have a shower. That is the limiting And I'll tell you, none of, of my friends living. even pay attention to their shower heads. I like get in their showers and I'm like, what is that crap? Like, can I buy you a decent shower head in exchange for a shower? <laughs> That's so funny. I absolutely believe that. I have never lived in a, well, 
No, I've never lived in a house that had like a good shower head or good water pressure. The, the shower heads are not that expensive. They really aren't. I should just go get yourself I a need shower and upgrade my shower yeah, head. Just do yeah, it. Yeah, you're making this very clear. Yes. Um, yeah, <laughs> you're change, right. It'll I, change your life. I bet that's what it is, though. We like take it. We take for granted that like water is coming out, and we can just bathe in it. But you're like, what is this fucking shit? <laughs> and you're like, this is so sad. Like you're the saddest little shower head ever. <laughs> so what? Uh, yeah, what uh, like no. ripped the bandaid off? Just like getting rid of your house completely and being like, all right, there's, there's not a place that's where I call quote unquote home anymore. Like what, yeah. what does that transition look like? It's, it really, it's, it's interesting. I feel like I should be more excited about it, but I'm <laughs> still working it all out. Sure. It's really difficult to feel ungrounded for me. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's the main thing of is course. like, not having like that, not really having that home base is really, mm-hmm. and not having that, like, it's like trying to locate the sense of home within yourself. Sure. Which sounds really cheesy and new agey, but at the right. same time, it's like, you have to be okay with yourself in order to do this. And I'm not, I'm still working on that. Right. <laughs> it's an ever, it's like ever a process of process. self and uh like location and right. all of that at the right. same time yeah. which seems uh like a massive undertaking it is it is it is it's it's been it's been really um and i've just been floating like even before i sold my house like the first thing i did was i took my dog and i drove to california from chicago i just drove with him and we stayed at different people's houses we stayed with friends i stayed with people i barely knew and just kind of like drove across the country and like drove up and down the coast of california and then drove all the way back with a friend and just like it took like two or three months to just not be not belong anywhere to purposefully purposefully choose, yeah to choose to not belong anywhere just to see what that felt like and it was okay last summer it was okay this this because now i don't have the house but i also don't have the dog anymore so that he was always like that kind of he was my grounding force because it was like he was also the routine like he was sort of like my take my takeaway routine it was part of your job was keeping a part of my job alive was making sure he pooped every morning (laughs) feeding him every morning, giving him his medicine every day and doing that on the other end at the end of the night. And, you know, I mean, I got to spend, that was sort of the most amazing thing when I got fired. They're like, and one day you brought your dog to work. And I was like, my dog, that's, I get to, I get to spend every day with my dog now and I never have to look at you again. It was kind of like, and no one's going to be mad at me for like bringing my dog to work. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of beautiful. It was kind of this like really beautiful moment. Like I actually got excited during the firing meeting where they're like, you didn't. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get home to pork chop. Pork chop. Chop. Yeah. That's beautiful. (laughs) I know. I love pork chop. chop, Even though I didn't even meet him. him. He's pretty cute. Uh, Anyway. So, yeah. Um, well, one of the so one of the things that happened right like immediately after I got fired, like five days afterwards, I a, a person I knew passed away, and I found myself sitting at the Cremation Society of Illinois, their office, and I'm like helping his girlfriend like do the paperwork and figure out what needs to happen and like do all of this like managerial stuff with like his 
things and yeah which is another thing that like you don't anticipate in that process is like how taxing it is to have to like yeah take care of all all of that stuff and legally cut all their billing off and stuff like that i mean it goes even beyond that like you know taking care of the apartment like i'll have you know that when you die (laughs) you don't you don't necessarily your lease doesn't go away jesus christ so if there's any sort of co-signer or anything like that or like an like person who who is um taking care of it they're expected to pay your rent until somebody's found to move into your apartment and if you got to clean out that apartment you still have to take care of all of that kind of stuff so that's just like one like little tiny weird weird yeah. anomaly but um there's like all these like little things and when i when i when i went and did this i suddenly was like oh when i was 15 years old i had decided to become a mortician <gasps> no way and that was what I wanted to do when I was 15. And my parents were like, oh, that's kind of weird. And then I went to art school instead because it's the same thing. <laughs> Pretty much. This is a different kind of death. Right? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, fine. I'm, pr- I'm really crappy at science. So I better just go to art school because I don't think I can handle it. I don't even think that psychologically I would have been able to handle. I took I, – I grew up in Miami um, I went to high school and college in Miami, and when I was in junior high, my last year of junior high, we were in the gifted program, and once a week, we all got put on a bus and like sent to Miami-Dade Community College. We could take whatever classes we want. Like there's a list Whoa, of classes that cool. we could take, like yeah. once a week, and get like college credit for and it get kind college of thing. credit. Yeah, I took the Ascent of Man, Death and Dying, and Mortuary Science when I was like 13, 14 years old. No way. Yeah. Yeah, I was, like, all into it. I was like, I'm going to do this. This is so great. Um, But, you know, of course, when you're a teenager, you do it not necessarily because you're interested in it. You do it because, like, everyone else is freaked out by it. Yeah. That was truly going to be, like, one of my questions was, like, how do you feel like that was the thing that you became interested in? I think I became interested in it because my grandfather died when I was that that year. So I moved to Miami with my parents and my grandfather was very sick. He had lung cancer and went through the whole hospice situation. And he was kind of like my favorite person in the whole world. Mm -hmm. And so like watching him die as a 13 year old is like, oh, because I had seen death with my other grandfather, but not so close, you know, and no one knew how to talk to me. No one could yeah. handle their own stuff. Right. And you kind of yeah. like watch this family sort of skirt around this dying man who everyone like reveres, but it is afraid of at the same time. Right. And, you know, I became very morbid at that age, like watching that and like all the other stuff that was going on in my family just completely wrecked me. It wrecked me as a 13, 14 year old. Like, our whole entire life was centered around my grandfather dying. Right. And that's what everything in my family was about at that time. Right. And so I became, I went, you know, as a teenager, you go into the morbid place. So I went into like, I'm going to go, I'm going to figure out what happened to him. I'm going to take the ascent of man class. I'm going to figure out what happened to his body. I'm going to, you know, like, wow, kind of went in that weird direction. Yeah. But then I never stuck with it, but it was always kind of in the back of my head. Man. And then dealing with my friend 10 years ago, it came up again. And, you know, my grandmothers had died and some other friends had died. But when I, I would get the catalogs from the mortuary school, 
like I would get them mailed to me and I was like, I should just go. I should just go. I should just go. And then I'd be like, I can't figure out how to do that and keep my very secure job. Right. Right. How do I do this and keep my very secure job? Right. So I just couldn't figure that out. And so I would just chuck them and be like, I'm just going to keep my very secure job because this is what I do. And then when I no longer had the job and then I was sitting in the cremation society and my friend works there. And so I called her up and I was like, I'm thinking about doing this. And she goes, you should totally do it. You'd be really good at it. And so I applied and I got into school and I was supposed to start school like a year and a half ago. Mm. <laughs> but I didn't go for a number of reasons. I, did, I haven't gone. I'm st- I, I can still go. They're like, just when you want to show Whenever, up, just show up. Yeah. Like they're like that. Um, I, I didn't go for a number of reasons. And one is because I don't really, I don't really, I'm not really into the way the death industry handles death in America. Interesting. And so going to school to do it, I would have to go to school to do it by the books. And you have to. Right. Like, you can't change a system unless you learn the system to change it. Right. But it's still really hard for me to try to imagine sitting going in classes and going through the motions and actually passing the tests and yeah. writing papers that fulfill what they need me to do and passing board exams and doing all that. So I'm still yeah. in this sort of middle space of... But in the meantime, I did all this other studying because I was like, okay, even though I'm not going there, what I still want to... What else does this, like, what passion and I do. Like- so I, I volunteered in hospice for a bunch... I did that for many months and like I would work with people like I would go and just sit with them as you know when they were dying I would sit and talk to family members I would have conversations with them I would give them suggestions and then I got certified as a death doula so I went through the training to it's you know death midwifery so you help babies into the world and you can help people out of the world and it's not just you know, like a doula doesn't just help the baby. It helps. She helps the mother. Right. Right. So the idea is that you're you're working not just with the person who's dying, but also their family. Yeah. And like helping them through the process. And I thought one of the biggest things was and I learned this from my grandfather was. How do you make that connection? Because there was no connection between me and my grandfather or my family and my grandfather. You're so afraid of it. You're so afraid of death. And you're so afraid of talking about it and admitting what's going on that it actually lessens the ability to have a conne- like an actual real human connection with another person. Because of the fear right. f- factor. The fear factor. Involved. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like North Americans are, it's like we're a society of magical thinkers, <laughs> right? If I say you're dying... Then you're dying. Then but guess what? You're world. still dying even if I don't say it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like it doesn't make it more real. Pers- it doesn't, it's not going to necessarily happen faster. Right. Um, right. So, you know, I mean, people really aren't actually, I don't think people are really afraid of death. I think people are afraid of pain and suffering. Yeah. And people are afraid of not being remembered. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So yeah. those are the two things. But unfortunately, the way we handle death in our society is a way that disconnects humans to the point where we actually feel like we won't be remembered. Like, you know, we don't have ancestor worship in the same way a lot of other cultures do. Right. You know, Um, if you ritually 
acknowledge those who came before you in your lineage, right? Like if that's part of your culture that you acknowledge that, you know that when you die, you the people who have be a part of that that you will then become a part of that lineage and the people who you've left behind will then ritually acknowledge you. But our society doesn't do that. So we, what we end up with are people who are dying who feel like they're not part of any sort of lineage, that no one's going to remember them. That if you don't leave behind money or things or objects or, you know, all of this other stuff that people aren't going to remember you. Because we don't ritually do that in our society. So people are like going through the throes of death thinking... I don't matter. I wasn't important. Or like that thing of like when someone's dying and people will say like, I'll be fine. Everything's going to be fine. It'll all be fine. And you suddenly are like, wow, I could die tomorrow and everyone will be fine. fine. Everyone will be fine. Oh and God, no one I even cares. Even thought about like think that. about that for a second. Oh my gosh. Like yeah. if I die tomorrow, oh, you'll be fine. Well, great. Well, great. Well, what, what, what was I here for? <laughs> yeah, and it's just also has to be in this constant battle of like that person not wanting to feel like a burden to their loved ones. Well, that's at the same part time. of it. Is like, is like, what if it was just okay to be sad and <laughs> yeah? I mean, what it, what if it was okay to have to be heartbroken and to admit that and to say that to somebody and to like actually make that connection? When you are gone, I will miss you. And you mean something to me and my heart will be broken. And that's okay. Yeah. And that's okay. It's okay yeah. for my heart to be broken. That's what hearts do. They break. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we don't have to pretend they don't. Right? That's mm-hmm. the thing is like not pretending that they don't. And if you can actually let that happen and let those feelings happen, you can make a connection with the person who's dying. So those are the kinds of things that you like try, yes, to, try to get talk people, people about and to like, people of, like, oh, it's making me cry. Oh, Sorry. I love you, Mary Beth. <laughs> you matter to me. I love you. Oh, man. I um. will be sad when you're gone. <laughs> Although I'm a lot older than you, so I hope that you're sad when I'm gone. <laughs> I will be sad when you're gone. You matter to me very much. Uh, oh, yeah, I... um. It's like to be able to have those conversations. And, I, and I've, I've talked a few friends through it. So I've had friends who call me. Like I had one friend who called me from California. And she's like, Shay, I don't know what to do. And I said, what's going on? She's like, I, I have to put my mom in hospice. And she wasn't even that old, you know. She's like, I have to put my mom in hospice. And I, and I said, okay, well, tell me what the situation is. We talked about it. And she's like, well, we're going to bring her home. And I'm like, that's awesome. I said, here are some suggestions I have for you in that process of bringing her home. And these are some of the ways to talk to her um, and to be open, you know. And unfortunately, she took it like one step too far because she felt like she could never leave her mom alone. Oh, no. Like, so it became like, oh, I want to be there for her. And now I'm going to really be there for her. Yeah. But a lot of times when people want to die, they want to actually die alone. And that was going to be a question I had for you as well, is that through all of this uh, and these sentiments are incredible and so powerful and so seemingly necessary because while I haven't lost uh, too many people very close to me, uh, especially, you know, um, I lost my grandfather Mm -hmm. when I was 18, but that was like the last, the the closest person Uh to me, you know, an immediate family member kind of thing. And, uh, 
But what I do struggle with is how to talk to people who are going through something like that, mm-hmm. you know, who are going through the loss of a parent or, you know, mm-hmm. like you're saying, um, it's got to be a great, you know, thing for someone in your life to be able to reach out to you and say, Shay, I am going through this and I don't mm-hmm. know what it looks like. And I definitely feel like there have been times where uh, loved ones of mine have lost a loved one of theirs and I have struggled with how to like be uh, consoling or mm-hmm. you know supportive mm-hmm. or whatever that looks like yeah I mean sometimes it's just to be there you know like sometimes like saying <laughs> saying stuff is the worst thing you can do right um, <clears throat> um, it's to kind of pay attention to what they might need and to just do it like not asking about it but to just like you see that they're not eating or you see that it should just be like bringing them things and like not necessarily oftentimes when people are going through grief, they can't, they can't vocalize what it is that they need because what they really need, they can't have. Yeah. What they really need is for that to not have happened. Right. And that's not something that we can, that you can give to them. So you have to like try to help them through. And to also let them know that, like, whatever it is they're feeling, like, it doesn't matter what they're feeling. It could be anger. It could be sadness. It could be, you know, I mean, there's just all sorts of guilt, regret, like, happiness. Some people feel relief. Just and then they feel guilt because they feel relief, right? And so this is like an ending cycle, right? It's like some if someone was suffering, and then they're gone, you feel relief, and then you feel guilty because like, oh my gosh, I feel good that they're not here anymore. It's like, well, no, that's not exactly what you feel good about. You just feel stress leaving, (laughs) right? Whatever, exactly. So, is to like help people understand that, like, no matter what it is, to let them feel it, like to not say to someone oh, you'll get over it, or, oh, you know, time, just time, blah, blah, you know, just, like, what, whatever it is you're feeling, it's okay. It's okay. I'm totally justified in it. Just feel it. Just, like, allow yourself to feel it, because if you just let that happen, instead of being, like, I can't feel that way, or I'm not supposed to feel that right. way, or this is taking too long. That's the worst one, is this is taking too long. It's, like, there's no time limit on it. If if the person who died is really lucky, you'll always be heartbroken. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Even it it's not something that you'll think about all the time. But when you do think of them, it'll hurt. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. That's the thing is we we make it a bad thing. Right. We make uh, it a bad and it's not. It's not a bad thing. And you mentioned specifically that like sometimes all the person who is dying wants is to be alone so that they can Die. Yeah, I have, I have to know that there's so many people who just, you know, stay around longer than they even feel like they really want to or should, just because they're like fighting for the people around them. Right. Yeah. And it's like, where does that? I don't know <laughs> they, the balance in that relationship. Some, I mean, lie. yeah, there's some people who, um, and this has come up where there'll be people who hang on for those people around them like they feel like they that the people around them can't handle themselves like they can't handle it like um how would i say it like oh if i go my wife won't be able to take care of herself right for instance right right? something like that or some people hang around because they're waiting for this one person to show up this one person like if my sister could just show up right if she could only get here 
then I can go because yeah. I've got, I've finished my business right? or um, they need to say something or they do want to be alone and they don't want, they think that they're dying will be too upsetting for those around them. And so they want to just, so like what happened with my friend was she had been up all night with her mom. She got up to go to the bathroom, came back and her mom was Ugh. dead. And she's like, I only left for a minute. And, and I'm like, like, yeah, it's, listen to yourself. <laughs> I was like, that, that's what she was. And, you know, and then, you know, it's to talk to her and to be like, that's what your mom was waiting for. Like your mom was waiting for you to not be in the room. And that's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's, she wasn't alone. Right. It, in that sense. Like she wasn't, you didn't abandon her and then she died because you walked out. It's like, right. oh my gosh, could you be any more Italian? Like, <laughs> like you're so Italian right now. Like, no, you're, I mean, your mom loved you, but geez, come on, you know, like, right. let's, let's keep yeah. it in check here. Yeah, a little right. bit. yeah, like don't make your mom leaving about what you did. did. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh yeah, this is all about you. Yeah, right. Yeah, this is not about you at all. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we have this thing in Man. our society, too, which, you know, the medicalization of death has become such a, I, it's such an issue because people have terminal illnesses. And yeah, I mean, I'm not saying not to fight cancer. Like, yes, of course, you have cancer, fight it. But then at a certain point, it's like the doctors aren't always necessarily like, they want to save lives. That's what they're in the business for. They're in the business to save lives. They're not in the business to have their patients dying on them, but that's what people do. Right. We die. Yeah. Our bodies sometimes don't work. Things happen. And when you get in this, this cyclical thing of fighting it and you fight it, fight it, fight it. And then suddenly the language that you use is fighting. And then guess what happens when you can't fight it anymore? You fail. You feel like you lost. Yeah. You feel like you lost. You feel like a failure. And that suddenly your death is failure. Your death isn't failure. Your death is death. That's that's what it is. It's death. It's your not death a failure. An inevitability. It's inevitability. And it's inevitability that we all have. And it's not, it should never be ever written out for someone to be a failure and but so many people also like go through the last stretches of their life not dying right so instead oh, th of that's all they focus their they're like on. this i can still fight this like all the way to the last minute so that this the biggest thing that they're ever going to do <laughs> which is die they're not doing it they're like literally not doing it like those conversations that you should be having, those things that you wish you had said to people, those those things that aren't coming out aren't happening because, because you still you have tomorrow to face the fact. Yeah. 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 And it's like the fact that we all die is actually a beautiful thing because it makes every morning getting up like special. Yeah. It makes it special. You know, we're very privileged. We're very entitled people. We feel very entitled to get up every morning. Like <laughs> I'm entitled to leave this studio, to go home and to wake up tomorrow. But what if that weren't so? You know, and I don't think that other cultures, I mean, even as, you know, I grew up in an Italian-American family and 
every night before when I was when I would stay with my grandparents every night before I went to bed, my grandfather and I said a prayer that was basically like, dude, if I kick it tonight, take <laughs> take me up to heaven. Right. Like sure. that was the thing was like, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray, I pray the, the Lord, Lord my, my soul, soul to, to keep. keep. And yeah. if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And every single night it was not a given that I would get up in the morning. It wasn't a given. So when I woke up and I was alive, that was awesome because I made it <laughs> to another day. But now it's like, now you wake up and you're like, oh, I made it to another day and now I have all this crap to do. It's like, <laughs> you're not even thankful that you made it to another day. Yeah. It's like, guess what? You don't have very many of them. You think you do. Yeah. And if you're lucky, you do get quite a few, but it's not a, it's not a given. And like... The longer you live, the faster everything feels like it moves Mm -hmm. because of this like relative, you know, when you're a little kid and you only have like nine years of life, every one of those days feels like a century just because of your Mm -hmm. relative like ability to understand time and how it feels in the span of your life. But like a day to a 90 year old is like they've had so many more days right. <laughs> right. I don't know that's just a, yeah. a thing I, do I wanna, think about it yeah I do want to mention something because this is this is important um, because I, I don't ever if anyone's listening to this I don't want people to think like oh my god she's brilliant because this is these are not necessarily like my ideas these are all teaching yeah, yeah you've been these through are, the these, programs yeah of- I've been to different programs and I I there's one specific one that I'm I'm in right now, um, and it's with a man named Stephen Jenkinson, and um, I am what well, he calls us all scholars. So I'm a scholar at the what's called the Orphan Wisdom School. Cool, and it's in uh, the Ottawa Valley in Canada. Awesome on his farm, and we go two sessions a year for two years. Cool. I'm going to my second session at the end of October. I'm very excited. Nice. Um, and so a lot of these ideas come from from stuff that I've studied with him and his stuff. I mean, I'm barely scratching. I'm barely oh, I'm putting sure. like I'm like barely. You can barely see this the scratch like on like the forward or something. <laughs> like the stuff that he talks about is just like I never thought of that before. Like one of the things he discusses is how like even if you're not religious, the basis of our our society here in North America is based on sort of like oh yeah sure yeah. yeah yeah and one of the things is that we in that culture we believe that death is a punishment mm. right death is yeah. a punishment right that you know what is the quote the wages of the wages of sin is death mm-hmm. you sin you die it's like well yeah we're, we're not, none of us are getting out alive <laughs> like <laughs> might as well make the best of it right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's so but it it makes it turns death into this negative thing, you know? Like it's this is this is what happens to you if you're not a good person. It's right. like, well, no, that's, that's no it happens to you if you're a good to person. All of us. <laughs> and and besides the fact that none of us are all good or all bad anyway. So Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just go there for one second. We contain multitudes. We contain multitudes. And those multitudes will all die. (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay. (laughs) 
I think that's like the understood part after we contain multitudes. So I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, is so is that program like uh, part of the process of becoming a death doula, or is that how did you like stumble I, on that? I stumbled on it because I was I was thinking about doing the certificate. Well, I was it was last summer. Um, when I was kind of just doing my like just traveling, getting out of Chicago, I just needed to get out of Chicago. It's like I didn't want to run into anybody from work. Right, sure, yeah. After twenty years, that's pretty much half the city. <laughs> like I just like run into people, and they'd be like, "Where did you go?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I, where did, where I, did go? I go? Mm. Why don't you tell me? Because I still don't know." <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Where did you go? Oh yeah, because that announcement was I just disappeared. Yeah. So that's really how they did you kinda, that dirty. Yeah. Yuck. Like, oh, Shay's just gone after twenty years. She just like up and left. Like, uh huh. Yeah, that's how that rolls. I really wanted a going away party of epic proportions because I had given those to everybody that had left over twenty years. I was the I was the epic going away party thrower. Anyway, I decided to become the epic going away party thrower for, for eternity. People. Oh my god! Yes, <laughs> fuck yeah! <laughs> I went from like fuck your job, epic, just epic. Oh, you're retiring. Let's have a party too. Oh, we've retired you. Yes. <laughs> fuck. Holy. Oh my god! I love that so much. Oh fuck! Thank you, you Mary Beth, because I didn't get that until just now. That just happened in this room. Good. See, thank I, you. <laughs> when you were talking earlier about like some of the things that you try to ask people, well, I'm more with like the mortified story crafting kind of things that you try to uh, glean from people's stories and, and lives and stuff and what they want to say. I was like, oh yeah, I feel like I kind of do some stuff like that on this show. It's like at getting into yeah, you why do. why you just, this that just happened. I know. That's why I, I mentioned you, it was Beth. like, yes, I do do that. <laughs> See, you do it do that. just happened. It just happened. And Man, actually, the, the storytelling thing, it all comes back. It all comes back around. So I did my road trip. And while I was out there, I was like, okay, I, I'm going, I'm applying to school. I'm going to start in school in fall. That was when I was going to start. So last summer, right. while I was out, I pretty much thought I was going to start school in fall. I bought all the books. $700 worth of textbooks. Oh my God, textbooks are so expensive. So expensive. And, and what you study in mortuary science is everything from embalming to anatomy, microbiology, pathology, law, social science. Sure. Like God, I didn't even chemistry, think about chemistry side. for embalming. Like I am terrible at chemistry. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not going to. Accounting, business. Ugh. Like you literally have to know how to do every everything single thing. Field. How to talk to people, everything, Fuck. communications, the whole night. Wow. So I was like getting ready to do that, and I was reading all these books. You know, I mean, I had been studying it for a while, but I was reading all these books, and I don't even remember how I came across Stephen. I think I came across him through Caitlin Doherty's uh, website, The Order of the Good Death, and I saw an event on her website because she lists events that are happening. And I saw on her website that he was speaking in Santa Monica while I was in Los Angeles. Oh. And it was a week after I was supposed to leave. And I asked my friend who I was sleeping on her couch for a month. <laughs> I said, I said, can I, can I, Lisette, can I stay an extra week? And she's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, no, she was really sweet about it. She said, of course. So I stayed an extra week just to go to his workshop. Man. So I went to one day workshop with this guy and he blew my mind. Cool. Like he totally blew my mind. Like. That's awesome. So 
but once I started studying what he was teaching, then I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I don't necessarily have to do this. That's not exactly what I want to do anymore. So he kind of threw me off, which is good. Right. He threw me off. And um and he used to work in hospice and stuff. So so that's when I started going, what are the other things? Cool. So I went in as like funeral director. And he kind of like And then he opened. kind of like opened it up. And so then I started working in hospice. And then I trained to be a death doula. Is that what introduced you to the idea of a death doula? No, I knew about it. And I was with? getting ready to do a certification. Um, actually, I wasn't going to start do. school last fall. I was going to start it just this past. this. I was going to start it in Nels. spring. Oh, okay, okay. Um. So then I just went home and I got certification to become a death doula. And then I was just studying all this other stuff. And I actually, this past summer, just became a certified life cycle celebrant specializing in funerals. So full circle, I now write funerals for people. Cool. So I become the storyteller for the dead. Oh, that's awesome. So you go back to mortification. So we go back to the beginning of the podcast. So people hire me. And I sit down with the family, I look at pictures, I take notes, I ask questions about the deceased, and then I put together not just a eulogy, but like an entire ceremony. Music, prose, poetry, the whole nine. I get other people to speak. I organize the whole thing. We do rituals. Like I work with the family to like figure out what they want said, how they want it to go, who, you know, they deal with like the other like the specific things sure. of like who they want there and where it is and all that sort of stuff i just show up so you don't even necessarily like produce that aspect of no. it you just i like, literally just write it write the ceremony i write the ceremony so i'm this the ceremonialist you know i'm the celebrant cool. so you know do you help them perform the ceremony as well or i can it, help them do it I, them. I some people um and this has come up where like oh i i don't think i can get up and speak sure and so I read it for them. Or sometimes people have difficulty writing it and I help them write it. You know, like this is the information you give me. The problem with like funerals versus weddings is weddings you have all this back and forth time. Like I can give you a wedding ceremony because I can do weddings too. I can give you the wedding ceremony and then you can adjust it and then we can go back and forth. A funeral happens in like two, three days a week. Right. Unless it's like a memorial service or like in an earnment or something like that. So. Right, right. It's more of like a you have to meet with them and figure it out kind of right away. Meeting. Yeah, like you figure out the information and then you go home and you write the thing. Yeah. You know, um, but it does... All of the things I learned from Mortified and the way to ask questions and the things I want to know, I learned through working with people about who they were when they were children. Right. So it's like I sat for 11 years and asked people really detailed, intimate questions about themselves and helped them prepare a story to perform in front of strangers to be able to get a certain feeling out of them. To be able to project, this is what I want people to know about me, and to also make sure that that's what they're that's what they're actually doing, right? Yeah. It's like if you want people to think you're a vixen, then you can't talk like that. Like that's not going to work. Like, or if you want people to think that you're shy, then you need to. That's not you know that's not coming across here. Right. So like also like language and wording and like and so learning all of that from working with people, I can now do that with funerals. Man. That so, is full circle. Amazing. We just did full circle. I love that so much. That's so interesting. Adolescence to death. <laughs> Mortified, 
to mortified. <laughs> Damn. Damn. In an hour. Did it that like is everyone paying attention? This was that, is cool was that shit. we just an hour? Like oh, a little over, but still. Come on. The That's fact that good. like it took one hour to just go like, hey, listen up. Here's the thing. <laughs> That's so cool. I I mean, you I mostly did that on your own. Like, I, uh, man. That's because wow. I'm a professional. You are. That's what I'm saying. Like, fucking hire this woman. Uh, what are the biggest <laughs> you things You can find my you- information on Mary Beth. Because I'm a nomad right now, obviously, people can't hire me because it's like, you contact me. I can write your funeral. But if I'm, like, in the middle of the woods in Ottawa, right. like, that's not going to help yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, mm. what are the biggest things that you find kind of reoccurring? Like, what are the biggest things that people want their, you know, uh, their mortified story to say versus their <laughs> mortified <laughs> story to say? Their eulogy. Right. Yeah, I had to write my own eulogy. And after we did it for my class, she's like, that's the hardest eulogy you'll ever write. And I'm like, oh, that wasn't actually that bad because I've been planning this since I was 15. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you don't know me. I've been planning man. my funeral since I was like a teenager. Right, man, that's yeah. so funny. So it's such but a like trope for like a young girl to be like, oh, my wedding is going to be this and this and mine this, was the funeral or the funeral. <laughs> I was like, that's I always like plan my funeral. My mortified, awesome. my my mortified piece, the first mortified piece I ever did. You know, when I first started doing it, was a journal that I had as a teenager called the Book of Depression, and it said the book of depression on the cover of the journal in black puffy paint. Oh, oh my. And it was just filled with poems about me wanting to die, including poems in which I asked Robert Smith of the cure to kill me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, apparently he's, he wasn't on it. So. He didn't. Yeah. He didn't I'm get the message. Here. He didn't get yeah. the message. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm know. still here. Maybe if the internet existed and you'd like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, people, people, I mean, in their pieces, people want others to know that they've changed Hmm. (laughs) or they haven't or Hmm. like depending on their personality. And probably how self-aware they are about the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) That's what they really want people to know is that like, I know. Okay. I know. This is, okay. I got it. I got it. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What do you think the biggest... Things. Well, the thing is, when you're dead, you don't really care. It's yeah, and you don't, get, <laughs> you don't really get a say. That's interesting, That's too. not true. I mean, some people plan their... Have that. Oh, yeah. Some people are really pre-planners. I have a whole booklet for that, too, like helping you pre-plan your funeral. Like, I can help people. Like, if they actually really are into that, like, yeah. I... Yeah. It's like, this is my deathbed music list like what is your deathbed music list like what do you want played in the room while you're dying because people should know yeah 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 it's it's you know a smaller scale but similar feeling to like what you want playing when you walk down the aisle or whatever it is it's It's like like, this is like i said this is one of the biggest things you're ever going to do you got to have a good soundtrack for it That's awesome. I actually, my sister just had a baby and that was like a thing for me. I was like, we have to make sure that mu- good music is playing while you pop this kid out. Yeah. And so there was yeah. music playing. Like there was like, it was really funny. Like she's like pushing and pushing and pushing and the nurses are in there and this song comes on. I don't, I don't even remember what song it was. Like some, 
like soul song and one of the nurses is like oh I love this song I'm like too bad it's just a commercial on Spotify <laughs> it's like the last oh my and my sister's God. like ah! and she's like oh this is a really good song and you're like this is a Spotify commercial <laughs> ruining everything yet again that's my, so my nephew was born to a Spotify commercial that's so funny <laughs> I think like my the main thing that I that's always really important to me. It always makes people cry. <laughs> it's, I don't mean to make people cry. Oh, it's, 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 are uh, you saying this for like my benefit? Or? No, okay. this is like a couple of guys that I know that I've been hanging out with. And like, I'll tell them this and you can see them like welling up and they're like trying real hard to not let it happen. They're like, I'm not going to let you have this. What aspect of it? And it was just sort of like people the talking about death and no the part about having a broken heart oh oh and it's like it's okay to to have one kind of always be sad about this not even just always be sad about it because you aren't always going to be sad about it right but the fact that you can look at someone and say you matter and i will miss you and my heart will be broken when you're gone yeah and then they get all like that's when I, that's what got me too. I know, man. and that then they look the at me, and then I'm like, "Do you feel that way about me?" No, just kidding. Because <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> oh, damn. sometimes it's just like, just it's not actually death. It's just that I gotta go. <laughs> right? Yeah. Will you be heartbroken when I get back in my van? <laughs> when I get back in my van, is it gonna make you cry? No, probably not. But so, so, but I'm allowed to dream. But I was going to ask that earlier, so I'm glad you brought that back up. Is like how, what does it feel like to work with people who do go through a total range of emotions whenever this? I can't tell. Happens? I mean, I can't. I mean, it's it's just interesting because I just sit with it. Like I don't, I don't, I don't tell them it's okay. Right. Like I just let them. You have to just let people feel their feelings right i i had i've only really had one death doula client and it was a pro bono deal somebody who didn't even know what i did i barely knew what i did i had just started you know and he was dying of cancer and he was alone he had no friends he had no family that's not true he had them but he had pushed everybody away Mm. right and that's something i learned a very very valuable lesson from him in the in I worked with him for like five or six months, six months, seven months before he died. And when he was in the hospice unit, like I became really close to the nurses because they were like, Oh, thank God you're here. Because he had become very difficult and like just so angry. Like he was so, so angry. And this goes back to that medicalization thing. Like he had fought this cancer so hard and then he quote unquote lost lost to the point where he was so angry about it that no one could get close to him. And I was really patient for a really, really long time. And I would try to do so many nice things to him for him. And like I would show up with food and I would bring him his favorite things and I would make sure stuff came from his house. And I was doing all this stuff totally pro bono. Like I was spending my own money on this guy who was dying trying to make his experience not as miserable, but sometimes people are just miserable and they're going to die how they lived. (laughs) But it was very hard for me as that person who was trying to make it a better experience. It was really, I kept taking it personally. Right. 
because I was trying so hard because I was just learning. I was still learning. And the nurses were like, the nurses were so supportive because they could see me trying to do this, you know? And like, I'd catch them like talking about me. Like Mm -hmm. I would stand at the desk and they'd be like in the corner. Like, I don't know. That woman has like the patience of a saint. Like (laughs) that kind of thing. Like that's so funny. They're like, we're so happy when she comes because he's so horrible until she gets here, you know, kind (laughs) of thing. But then one day he was really horrible to me to the point where I was like, I can't, I can't. You drove away the last person. This was it. This was your last chance. And I, and you don't really want people to have that experience, but at the same time, you can't force people's experiences. No, and that's I think that's what made me think of it is like, how do you handle other people's emotions? And at a certain point, there that's his emotions. You know, I said, can I get you anything? What can I do for you? What can I help with? And he goes, you can drop dead. And I said, excuse me. He goes, I really, really want you to drop dead right now. And I was like, okay, consider it done. I'm out. You'll never see me again. You'll never see me again. And it was really sad. And I asked the nurses, because they would call me and like... Try to get you to come back. No, but try to get me to come back. They just sort of update me. And I asked them after he had finally passed away or he finally died. They're like, he was the longest person we've ever had in the unit. Because he was so clinging. He just so wouldn't accept the fact that this is what was happening to him. He could not go gracefully at all. Like yeah. at all. And I think that's one thing is like let people know that you care about them and that they matter. And I think that also helps people go gracefully. It's man. It seems there too, was no grace in that. No. And it, it seems so like an attempt at self-preservation too, which is not helping. Right. It's counterintuitive. It's totally counterintuitive. I mean, but that's, that's, but that's, man, yeah, I, I mean, it's funny that you said that. It was like, even, I've, I've had encounters with people who, like, aren't even necessarily uh, dying in, in an immediate way. Yeah, not in, immediate. In, not, just sometimes you wish. That we're all dying. <laughs> yeah. uh, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah you're yes, like, like, people that why I'm can't like, we speed this can up? Can you just leave? And it's, <laughs> and I'm like, man, I I have to constantly remind myself to like attempt to be empathetic because I see so clearly that it's self-preservation that it's like mm-hmm. I don't want you to like me because then I have an excuse because then it's like well this person doesn't like me anyway so fuck them right but it's like yeah because you're being foul yeah you're being impossible to be around right so why would anyone want to like you know like well this goes back to the mortified right it comes back to like when you talk to people about you know people will come to me with their journals and stuff and they'll be like I don't understand why I couldn't have a boyfriend I'm like well did you read this yes right you created this situation right like sometimes you have to take responsibility for the situation you created I got fired from my job and partially I created the situation in which I was fired because I wasn't putting up with crap anymore like you know it's like I also like said things I probably shouldn't acted in ways I probably shouldn't because I just was done right and you know (laughs) right and and that happens right so it's like yeah yeah. so you have to take response it's like yeah you have no friends you have no family and you're lonely but why because you're not generous and you're not kind it's you know, and you actively and, drove people right. away from and you. now suddenly you're expecting me to be generous and kind with you and I'm trying and you can't even accept that yeah because it's it's a give and take right it's a give and take so you know when I work with people with mortified it's really interesting because you have that thing where you're like 
especially when you work with with people who are a little bit older who have their own kids oh. they'll be like they'll come to me and they'll be like well yeah you know with my kids like i know what it's like to be a teenager da 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 and then they reread their journal and they're like oh my god oh that's not what I remember being a teenager like. Oh, and so man. they just kind of throw it off like, oh, I remember what that was like. Oh, that was hard or whatever. And then they realize the actual struggle they went through. Then they have new respect for their ch- children. Yeah. Man. Or that's like, so cool. you know, you have like one guy who who was like super religious. Right. So he made this decision when he was in college that every time he did something bad, he would just go back, write it down in his journal and then repent and then like say sing a hymn or whatever right Right. and that would make it better so his whole journal was like all these awful things he would do and then he'd go back and repent and at first it was funny and then I really thought about it and I was like you know I'm just gonna say this to you now you treated women like shit like you really treated women like shit and you thought that by going back to your room and, and repenting and asking God's forgiveness that somehow that was it was okay. okay to continue treating them like shit. You were an asshole. <laughs> and he was like, oh my God. Like he got like, be, like he never thought of it in that way. Wow. Because he had, cl- he had cleared himself the whole time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like the idea of repentance isn't just to continue doing the same things that you do. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's to like it's change to rep- your ways. Yeah. It's and to I think eventually that. he did, yeah, right, but sure. you know, eventually he did. But at the time, like, you know, it, it became a funny thing because that's what Mortify does. It's a yeah, comedy. Of course. Right? It's yeah, funny. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, yeah, it's really funny that you'd be like, you know, I finger banged so-and-so behind the rock. And, oh, God, I feel like she doesn't remember. Oh. I feel like a tar-soaked railroad tie has been lifted from my back, you know, or something like that. It's like, oh, yeah, no, that's not cool. <laughs> How do you feel like your love of and interest in and kind of like journey with uh, mortified and uh, mortification and that whole cycle that we talked about mort um, has influenced you both creatively and your life experience in general. It's a big question. It's a, that's a really big question. Like right now I think also because I'm nomadic. You're not sure yet. I'm not sure yet. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, I feel like creatively, I used to, I mean, I was an artist for a long time and I made lots and lots and lots of things, most of which I destroyed. Huh. So huh. even though I do mortified, like I had to go through a process of cleansing. Like I had to kill off everything. Like at a certain point, I just like, I had to kill off my childhood. Like I literally went through and the stuff that I knew I could use for mortified, I used. Sure. And everything else got destroyed. Wow. And like all my artwork got destroyed. And like my one of the things that happens when you deal with people and death and like their stuff, because we were talking earlier about stuff, was that suddenly I'm like surrounded by all this stuff. And I was like, if I were to die tomorrow, what would I want people to think of me? Would I want them to see this? Does anyone ever need to see this? Right. It's the same thing. It's like when I'm working with a person, I'm mortified. What do you want the audience to know about you? Right. So when I'm getting rid of all of my crap, I'm like, what if I were to die tomorrow? What do I want the world to know about me? And this like crappy printmaking shit I made about Twin Peaks in high school is not what I want the world to know about me. Like, wow, she was a pretty kind of horrible, mediocre, not very good artist. Like, that's not what I. And like, this is about a weird TV show. show, Happened to come back and it's a whole thing and who cares? I mean, I was really into it the first time around. But also like all my journals, 
I was like, I was rereading them and I was like, do I really want, this is not who I am now. And I could laugh about it, but none of it was really funny. I was like, do I really want the world to see the super miserable, complainy, whiny (laughs) teenager? No. Of course not. I I don't mind it in in the little parts where I used it for mortified, but like for the most part, none of it was funny and it was just. Especially without your commentary going like, right. hey, I know this is cloying and bad. Right. Like, you know. If someone were just to find those, they'd be like, God, so full of herself. Right. right. That, and that's an interesting aspect of the show, too, is that like, you kind of give the person the opportunity to reclaim the narrative of what that thing that made them mortified was, as opposed to just presenting it as is. Right. And being like, oh, watch this. Uh, look well, at this they crappy, do do like, that. They do do that. They do get to like, you know, there is that part where they're like, I'm so embarrassed. Right. But then at the end, they can bring it right. back. So they have to kind of, you have to go through that process first. You can't, you can't just redeem yourself. Right. Yeah. That's you have point. to, you have to get crucified before you can be risen. You have to. You got to write yeah. something down in the journal before you repent or yeah. whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. You still, you still have to finger bang whoever behind <laughs> the bushes. You still got to. We still have to hear about, you know, her nipples like pencil erasers or whatever, you know, like whatever thing you had to say, horrible thing you had to say. Right. right. So, you know, I when I went through all that stuff, well, also when you come to the realization that like what you were saying about when people in your family die, like I don't want any of that stuff. And that's actually a huge thing. Like people think like I have this collection of stuff and I've worked really hard to have it. And when I die, someone's of course going to appreciate it. It's like. Uh, why actually maybe not so much you know and it's not to say that it isn't amazing and that there isn't somebody who might really be into that but your immediate family or other people aren't necessarily going to be those people yeah right you know then then they are given the task of locating the person who would love that thing yeah and that was like my exact thought was like, is, is there just somebody who's like buying up, you know, old China and stuff? But it just seems like that's going to happen more and more because it seems like the society uh, as we live in it is changing. Mm-hmm. I feel like like your generation because you're just you're the generation after me. Mm-hmm. My generation is still kind of like on that weird to crux. Like yeah. we still like stuff. Yeah. You know, we're still stuff oriented. Yeah. And I think less and less. As time goes on. I mean, my sister is closer to your generation than mine, but she, she's still pretty stuff oriented. Yeah. But not in the same way. mm -hmm. Like, I mean, like I, I also come from like, you know, I have lots of friends that are like artists and stuff. And so I have a storage unit. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I have a storage unit. I went from a four bedroom house to a 10 by 10 storage unit, (laughs) but it's mostly like artwork and some books and, you know, like, I do have collections of things that I haven't it's, quite been able to, like, part with. Yet. But that stuff, too, that, like, if you were in an apartment versus, like... I could live with that in an apartment. Of course. Right. That's what yeah. I'm getting at. Is like, you've scaled your life down to uh, small apartment sized <laughs> A 10 by 10 storage unit size, <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> and a van. A Dodge right. Grand Caravan. Right. With a bed in the back. Right. Uh, if the if the minivan's rocking, don't come knocking. <laughs> I had to say it eventually. Yeah, I mean, it was... it's got curtain. It's got shades. You can't see in it. That's I slept amazing. in Wicker Park, not in the park, but like it, I parked it. it like one block behind, like where Smoke Daddy is. Yeah, and it was real quiet. I slept in there for eight hours. Nobody even knew. That's amazing. <laughs> it was awesome. 
<laughs> Man, I think that's great. <laughs> I still I still get super anxious when I wake up every morning. Even though I'm grateful I woke up. <clears throat> Don't get me wrong. I'm still super anxious. Of course. How could you not be? It's hard. Like I'm even... sleeping at my friend's house and he's out of town and it's an amazing apartment and I'm so incredibly grateful because it's like gorgeous. It's like yeah. here's this guy who collects things, right? Like he's got a lot of things he collects, but it's all like meticulously placed and like gorgeous. And you're just like, oh, this is Maybe what building a nest where, yeah. feels like. You know, yeah. there is a certain thing to be said for nesting. Maybe find your nest. I gotta find that's the nest. nest. Yeah, well, I think that's that's a that's a great place to land in terms of okay. like uh, <laughs> what what does the nest look like and um, how important is it to me to figure that out. <laughs> Are you? So you need to figure out your nest because you're getting married. And yeah, I mean, this has been an incredibly, like, obviously, at least partially emotional conversation for me. But it's, um, it's like made me go, like, man, okay, this is how I reach out to this person in my life and say, mm-hmm. like, hey, um, sorry, you've had to go through all this, but uh, I'm here and you're important, and that person was important, and all this stuff is like. That's, I think, the thing I've picked up most from my time in Chicago is that my nest looks like the people that I'm around and I'm talking to and that are important to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything else just seems like it's less <laughs> important. Yeah. So that's when I get the most frustrated with myself is when I'm not, when I don't feel like I'm paying as much attention to the things that I think are important mm-hmm. and eschewing those for like less important things. You know, we used to say, put your best foot forward or put your best face forward. And now it's like, put your best Facebook forward. Yeah. It's like literally, it's like you can sit there and look online at everyone's life and they're only putting out what they want you to see. Right. <clears throat> they're only putting out like that stuff. That is like they're constructing their life for other people to see, and most of the, not all the time. That's that's not really the, what's going on per se. But I feel like we we aren't connecting on that. Oh, always on that. Like in some ways, it's kind of great because I mean that's how I've actually been able to be in touch with a lot of people, you know, who have like reached out to me is like through that kind of social media community who have like reached out to me and be like, I need your help. Because I know you're doing this. Because I saw it on Facebook. Right. Right. So there is those kinds of like good things about it. But then there's like this other thing where it's like you make this assumption that because so-and-so is constantly like on vacation somewhere and eating really great food, that they're fantastic and they're doing really well. But really they're doing all of those things because they can't function otherwise. Like they literally are like losing their minds if they don't like like something horrible is happening, but you don't even know. know? I definitely like am really exhausted by... Uh, the culture of all that, but I still like actively witness it and uh, inactively participate in it. I don't know. It's just really. F- it's a weird thing because it's a really, really weird thing because on the one hand we feel more connected, and on the other hand we're more isolated at the same time. It's like yeah. we're more connected in a lot of ways, which is really great. But on the other hand, we're doing it by ourselves at home. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If I didn't spend so much time looking at what other people were doing in their lives and like actually like going like, out and like doing yes, something. Fuck, yes. That's what I think about is like we're all just like uh, solo like experiencing li- our lives like from separate places when like before we would have to like 
meet up and be like, hey, this is what's going on in my yeah. life. And like, and all of those things that we throw information into also take all that information and like mix it up and say like, uh, you probably want to see this. And like, so we're not even, we're not even totally in control of yeah. how we experience any of it. So how do you, uh, how can you speak to any of that where, from where like people, uh, dying comes in is like, well, you know, interestingly, so the person that I was talking to you about who I had the death duel experience, who was miserable. Yeah. Well, I think a really, really important thing when, you know, we were saying earlier about people are afraid of pain and suffering because they associate death as pain or suffering as like a negative thing, right? And also that you want to be remembered. But it's not even just that you want to be remembered, but you want to feel like your life meant something like when you die. Like, I want to feel like I did something like yeah. I mattered to someone. I, right. I was of consequence, right? Yeah. And this one guy... This is this is the way I saw like the internet kind of helping with this rather than harming or whatever was that he had found a forum of other people who were experiencing what he was experiencing. And so he became part of this sort of online community of men who were also going through the same experience and he would post regularly and then he sort of suddenly became like not famous or anything but like within that community people, people looked out to him they knew who he was they read his stuff they commented on his stuff sure. and the fact that you are bed bound you are alone and you are bed bound and our society like you know i mean in his case you know he created this situation like i'm hoping to build a community or a tribe of people that wouldn't have you alone. I wouldn't in that. be alone in sure. that situation, right? So that's actually kind of part of the process of what I'm looking for right now. <clears throat> but watching him, like, this was one of the ways that it actually became a positive thing was that it helped him, gave him reason to to do something. Yeah. It gave him reason to, like, be in the world, yeah. even though it's just online. Like, he was a support mechanism for other men who were going through the same thing. Yeah. Um. And he actually would like read to me their comments. Like mm. he was so proud. Like it was like this thing of like, I helped somebody. The fact that he helped somebody gave him purpose. Yeah. I think one of the things that happened, however, at the end was that suddenly he couldn't fight it anymore and he was dying and he wouldn't allow himself to express that process. And I talked to him about this. That's interesting. So he was like, no, my job for these men is to be a beacon of hope. And I'm like, oh, the tyrant hope. Yes. <laughs> um, hope is like the worst. It's like the Buddha saying, you know, once I gave up hope, I felt much better. Ha. So, you know, he, he felt like he couldn't, he could no longer express his actual experience because if he did, then these guys would no longer have hope because right. his experience is dying. Right. And it's like, but what if you expressing the experience of dying showed them a way to do it, that you could teach people how to die? That's the thing about our culture is we don't have elders. We don't have people who show us how to die. We don't right. have people who are teaching us how to die properly and well and gracefully. We completely missed that opportunity it's like you know what do you become you know this is what the orphan wisdom school is right like if we're lucky we all become orphans right that's the whole yeah. point 
yeah. is that we cannot live if the generation before us doesn't die. Yeah. We can't live. My fiance says that a lot. It's like best case scenario, your parents go first. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it is best case scenario. Um, that in order for life to continue, death must happen. Mm-hmm. It has to happen. I can't be here and still have my great grandparents alive. Yeah. If I were to have children, which I don't, but if I were, like my nephew can't live his life if I'm still alive. Like he won't, eventually he won't be able to live his life if I'm still living. Like it just doesn't work that way. not how it works, right, right. That's just not how life works, you know? And so if you do it well, once you become an orphan, you then eventually become an elder. Like you become that person. If you do it well, you, you become that person. You become the person who everyone else looks up to on how do I do this? The problem is, is like, I feel like in our society, we're so clinging to still being children and we're still clinging to like not becoming that we still hold on to our childhood so strongly in a way that doesn't allow for us to become that elder. Like we don't want to take responsibility. We don't want to be beacons of what should we should be doing. You You don't want to have to be the people person that people are looking to. Mm-hmm. But eventually, be able to look to someone. we're going to have to be. Naturally. Because that's how that works, right? Like right now, we're sort of still in that middle. Of, it, it's gotten older and older and older and older. For sure. Yeah. Like once upon a time, you were doing this in your 20s. Yeah. Because the lifespan Life was like, sure. is not long. Yeah. So, but now it's older and older and older and older. We, we stay children longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. And it's not to say not to have wonder or not to have childlike curiosity about things. I think that's fantastic and people should still have that, but that's different than not having responsibility of course. and not being yeah, I'm really know, like an elder frustrated by throwing around the phrase adulting. Yeah. It's like, cause usually it's just tied to like something that is like a normal thing that you should be able to do in your life. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah it's like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, 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 you are like, uh, being an adult but like you're an adult now like, right yes but but you are <laughs> right it's, it's like this is just yeah yeah you know thinking about like the fact that you're getting married right yeah so there's the people who have been married before you mm-hmm. that you look to mm-hmm. and like how do you do this you're gonna obviously look to people who were married well yeah. hopefully right. to see how they do it well yeah you know you're gonna look to people who are married badly and say what are you doing wrong? Because I, that's not how I want to do this. Right. right, right. But you know, eventually you will then hopefully become the married couple that people look to. Right. So eventually you hopefully become that you become the married elder. You become the, the role model for those people who then want to get married. But like, you know, what is your, what is your fiance's name? Eric. Eric. It's like, look at, Look at Mary Beth and Eric. Like, that's what I want to be. Like, that's what I want it to look like, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you strive for. Because your life, life continues anyway, right? You know, like life continues whether your life does or not. Right. So you, you hopefully are, you know, it's like, we're, we're not, we're not so self-absorbed that this is it. Like, you know, there's a, there's this, this word that we use all the time, end of life. Mm. 
it's the end of life. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, the end of life institute. The, oh, the end of life, this or that. It's like, no, it's not actually the end of life. It's the end of your life. But life doesn't end because you do. Right. Right. And life is bigger than us. And so what you were saying before about community and how that's really important to you, that's the thing is like we don't live in villages anymore. We don't live in communities like that. And we are so like modular and insulated and we don't have that sort of village mindedness that takes care of each other. Hmm. We just don't. Like we can go to our friends and if they are available right. and they feel like it, yeah. if they feel like it and it doesn't, you know, mess up their daily schedule or get in their way, then perhaps maybe they'll help you. Yeah. But that's not how villages work. Villages are there and they work together because if the whole village isn't working, then nothing gets done. Right. Yeah. All of you can't survive if you aren't all participating in the village right 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 whereas us we're all like self like perpetuating self-perpetuating like i can take i have my four-bedroom house what can i give to you nothing right right so we go back to that like what can i provide for you that's so interesting you know it's like if you all lived in a house together yeah if one person isn't you couldn't pay your rent yeah if one person isn't keeping up their end of the bargain then the whole house goes to shit yeah you know if one person doesn't participate and pay the water bill then you don't none of you have water yeah so you you think bigger than yourself you know in those circumstances and we aren't trained to do that at all we're trained to what was that thing i was that article i said earlier the poverty of uh believing in yourself yeah it's like well yeah you can believe in yourself but if other people don't believe in you who gives a shit (laughs) well it's like you can't get anything done right it's like for me to show up and do this podcast with you, I had to believe in you. Yeah. Like, of course you believe in yourself, but then if other people don't believe in you, who's going to show up and talk to you? Right. Yeah. Man, that's I can believe true. in myself yeah. all fucking day long, <laughs> but if other people don't believe in me, they're not going to talk to me. Yeah. Yeah. It still works in a village. We uh, pretend it doesn't. <laughs> We're like, I can take care of myself. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. It's just a very good perspective, as a lot of this has been. <laughs> Thank you a lot for it. I wish I could listen to myself because I'm like the one who's always like waking up and complaining. All the time. <laughs> no, like but the that's worst. why we do it. That's why, at least anyway, that's part of it for me is like, what's the fucking point of being miserable when you can be happy because there's not enough time and <laughs> you're just going to end up driving all the people away and yeah. trying to get your, you know... Uh, satisfaction from uh, people that you don't know <laughs> yeah. with words on the internet yeah yeah and so it is <laughs> I remember I remember being a little kid and it was like the big thing was like um, because it was obviously very very much before internet was you know party lines like you would call like if you were lonely you would call a phone number and there would be Fuck. other people on the other and you would get on the telephone and do this like with total strangers yeah and just That's like, which always turned into like, you know, like weird sex shit. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. and, then, yeah. and then someone immediately ruins it. Yeah, somebody immediately. <laughs> like, but it was like we had party lines. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe I remember that. Yeah. You know? Like uh, they were always like listed in the back of like Rolling Stone magazine. I do think that like podcasts are, are definitely party lines on some. These are our party level. lines. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thank you for doing this party line with me. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks I for inviting me to your party for line. Bringing my emotional <laughs> state into this. No. But thank you so thank much. Thank you for 
thank you for trusting me enough to do that in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're welcome. And you, I mean, that actually means a lot. Like, does like, that, you know, for people, I can tell. Yeah. Obviously. I'm the person that's like, do you need to weep? <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I can handle that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm usually the one doing it. <laughs> I'm I'm like, I was probably crying half the way here. So, thank you so much. Thanks. You're welcome. I love Any you, time. and I mean that. I love you too, Mary Beth. You're gonna stay in touch. Yes, I okay. want to. Okay. <laughs> Baby, how you feeling? This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit Patreon.com/Nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.